0: Hey guys, I'm Hamita Sanzade. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Parametric Architecture Platform. Hopefully we're continuing our podcast sessions and today both our guests are joining from London, United Kingdom, and both of them from Bartlett School of Architecture, Mario Carpo and Jill Retson. Mario Carpo is the Rainer Banham Professor of Architectural Theory and History at the Bartlett School of Architecture, UCL. Karpu's publications include The Second Digital Turn, Design Beyond Intelligence, The Digital Turn in Architecture, The Alphabet and the Algorithm, A History of Digital Theory, and Architecture in the Age of Printing. Jill Retson runs his eponymous practice in London and he is co founder of the design tech consultancy AUR. He co authored the book Robotic Building Architecture in the Age of Automation and the AD issue Under the script. He is the program director of the BPRO Architectural Design AD at the Bartlett School of Architecture in London. In this podcast, Mario Carpa and Jill Retson discuss architecture and automation in the context of COVID 19 crisis and its aftermath. As global production chains have proven to lack resilience, local digital manufacturing presents a compelling alternative. What does this mean for architecture? How do we as architects shape an agenda for increased automation in such a way that it benefits all? This talk explores a series of urgent questions that will deeply affect all of us in the near future. Let's get into the podcast and find out. Guys, before going to the podcast, just wanted to mention that Computational Design NEXT 2.0 Conference will happen on 26th and 27th of September. It is a two-day online conference with live presentations, tutorials, interactive sessions, live mentorship and panel discussions. So if you're interested about computational design or if you want to start your career as a computational designer, don't miss out this opportunity. And just register to the conference by going to parametric architecture.com and register to the CD Next conference as soon as possible before tickets end. Now, let's get into the show. I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi, Mario. <laughs> it works. <laughs> you <Very laughs> are. How are you?
2: I've been on Zoom since 9 a.m. this morning.
1: As everyone, the new normal. So, Sorry, um,. I will do a big change now on, on Instagram. Exactly, like that's good for a change. I will uh, stop the comment section now so Mario's head is not covered by uh, by comments. Uh, everyone who's watching, you can post questions uh, for me and Mario in the question box at the bottom of the screen, and then we'll try to pick up on some of these. Um, and I would like to start um, the conversation, first of all, by thanking. Um, Hamid and uh, Parametric Architecture Platform for hosting this talk. I think it's really fantastic that um, today that we can actually bring architectural discourse and architectural historians like Mario to Instagram. It's a very, very new format that may be as part of the new normal that in Covid times we we meet each other on Zoom, we meet each other on Instagram and reach out to each other in this way. So I think that's really uh, fantastic work uh, from uh, Parametric Architecture to, to host this event. And um, a quick uh, introduction. So uh, my name is.
0: Um, Be right back. I need yeah. some moment light. <laughs> <money.
1: laughs> um, what? What? Well, Mario is, is fixing something. So my my name is Jill Redcin. I'm a, an architect. I'm based in London. I. Run the MRAD AD part of BPRO at the Bartlett School of Architecture. I'm also a co founder of uh, our LTD, which is a design tech uh, consultancy. And um, I edited a few books together with my colleagues, such as Robotic Building and the AD of the Discrete. And our um, Mario, I will introduce you formally to the audience. So, Mario is the Reiner Bannam Professor of Architectural History and Theory at the Bartlett um, University College of London. And he's the author of two very famous books, The Alphabet and the Algorithm, and The Second Digital Term. Um, and he's new to Instagram, so uh, th- this is quite an event uh, to have. This. Uh, and may- maybe a little intro. So what we're going to try to do, like we'll discuss mainly um, architecture and automation. But so we kind of try to situate this also in the context that we're all in today, which is uh, Mario and I call it the post colonial times. So the coronial times. So basically, the kind of um, the rapid changes that we're seeing as a result of the COVID-19 uh, crisis. So I'll kind of leave it there and just um, maybe shift it to Mario, who will start the uh, the conversation.
2: Yeah, can you actually hear me?
1: We can hear you perfectly, Mario. All good.
2: Oh, oops! <laughs> but now you can no longer see me because I built a complicated concoction with a lot of duct tape. To put the telephone on the top of uh, a yeah. pot, which is generally used for cooking. So let's hope it will stay there. So, well, thanks, thanks for organizing this this unusual format talk. And where do we start? Because there are many things we have been saying for a long time, and which we were saying the last time we met live, which was in my seminar at school two days before the lockdown started. So we were in fact among the last person I saw before we started to be secluded. And that was indeed the last class I took at school before the beginning of lockdown. It was Wednesday before the lockdown started. So there are things we have been saying for a long time, which you repeated, we discussed on that day, which are still true today. And then there are a number of things which are quite new, which, Months ago, we could not have imagined in our wildest dystopian nightmares, and yet they have happened. So, there are some pre-colonial arguments, some of them, most of them, still valid today. There are some new post-colonial arguments which now challenge our understanding. Now, starting with the stuff we are more familiar with, start with. The things we have been saying for some time. Mm-hmm. You know, the digital turn has been going on for some time and it has already gone through many steps and different phases. And as we all know, and that's something we have discussed so many times, at the beginning, in the 90s, we, the design community, we discovered digital mass customization. We discovered the possibility use a new technical logic which is quite unlike anything we have ever known the possibility of mass producing items which are all different a complete reversal of the technical logic of the industrial age and of the industrial revolution using digital tools we can make one teapot or one thousand teapots or one million billion trillion gazillion teapots all identical or all different and in theory they will always cost the same there are no economies of scale in digital or computational design and making. Don't look for economies of scales because there are none to be found. This is such a, you know, a complete reversal of everything we have been familiar with for the last two centuries, that we still fail to understand the import and the meaning and the, the consequence of this complete reversal of our techno-cultural, social, political, economical environment. That was the beginning. Then, starting from 2004, or 5, or 6, or 8, mm-hmm. I generally put a turning point after the first dot .com crash. You, I know, favor a turning point eight years later.
1: Yes, during 2008. after
2: the, the financial, financial crisis, because you're younger than me, and so you were not there in 2001, and you don't know what happened in 2000, 2001, whereas you only remember it. But let's put the two together. There is a turning point between 2000 and 2008, and from that point on we have been discovering discreteness. So a new technical logic where we can notate, calculate and fabricate objects which are made one, one million, billion, trillion, billion different little parts or chunks, each one individually notated, calculated and fabricated. This of course creates an additional problem which is what we are now starting to Yes, we can notate, calculate, and fabricate million, billion, trillion of little chunks and components and parts, but how do we put them together? How do we assemble them? How do you put all this stuff together to make a building or a complicated object which is made of many parts? Now, traditional architectural way of doing that is you don't tell it, you don't show it. You hire a team of students who work for nothing, and so they do the assembly by hand, and then you show it and you say, well, one day we shall have robotic, automatic tools to do it, but we don't do that yet, which is <laughs> <fact>. <laughs> um, Of course, scaling up is the problem. We can use unpaid architectural interns to make up pavilions to show it at the summer show of our schools. You cannot build a real house in that way. You cannot build a skyscraper in that way. So to scale up, we need to scale up our technological implementations. We need what we now have, robotic automated assembly. That's the only way of putting together so many chunks, so many parts into a big building. And that's what we are just now trying to discover and to conceptualized because, strange as it may seem, industrial robots have been around for 50 years, almost even 60 years, Mm -hmm. but until now, they were tasked to do very stupid tasks. They were tasked to repeat the same gesture from sunrise to sunset, around the clock. And now we know that if we put only a little bit of intelligence in these robots, there is no limit to the amount of stuff they can do. The sky is the limit if we start to treat robotic assembly as an intelligent operation, mm-hmm. not a repetitive operation. And if robots can really work that way in an environment like building, where we deal with incontrollable, random, different, heterocritical stuff, then this is really something which has the potential to change the way we deliver building because it's easy to use robots in a factory. It's a perfectly controlled environment. They can repeat the same operation, sunrise to sunset. In a building site, you cannot do that because we deal with stuff which is always different, which is random, where things happen. So we need intelligent robots to build, way more intelligent, but you need in a factory to make a car. Making a building demands so much more invention and improvisation and intuition and fixing, you know. But so this is what's happening now. This is, I think, the interesting phase of discovery. We have only just started. And of course, if we made things by chunks, now things which are made by chunks are bound to look chunky. No matter how you know robots can work around that. But Things which are made by many chunks are going to show like as if they are they're going to look like they are chunks. This is a significant change if you think of how digital design used to look like. Mm. It used to look smooth and polished, and now it doesn't. It looks rough and chunky. And chunkiness or roughness what I call computational brutalism, one things which is rough and chunky, it has a different symbolic value. Because if you think of it, and I mean this is a very banal argument, not something I would like in a book, but something but we it's made it's good discuss- for
1: Instagram, like you can <laughs> yeah, see it something
2: exactly we couldn't discuss it, sitting at a coffee table, which we cannot do right now. But you know, things which look smooth, looks charming and, you know, friendly, Gives an idea of acquiescence. It tells people, "But you're happy, you're at peace with the world, everything is fine." And now things that look chunky and disjointed and laborious and rough has an embedded aggressiveness, an inherent, um, how can I say, oppositional character. Mm. It's like a a sort of embedded resistance, no? It's, yeah, it's something which tells the word, but, you know, something which is very chunky. It's like if you want to tell the world, but you want to punch someone mm-hmm. on, his, on his nose. You're fired up, you're angry against something, you want to change something. It mm-hmm. is a sign of the fact that you're fired up and ready to fight. It has an inherent aggressiveness in it. Smooth curviness doesn't have, because curves are meant to be frictionless. It's streamlined. Mm-hmm. It's about yeah. speed and velocity. Yeah. It's about avoiding turbulence because it's streamlining. Yeah. Roughness is about emphasizing turbulence and taking up a position to fight against it. And this is not a coincidence because the last 10 years or so, many young designers like you have decided that computation must have a political stance. It must tackle issue of economics, costs, labor, and the environment, stuff which in the 90s, mm. digital designers did not consider. We, as you've been saying, we do not need today's um, object-oriented ontology. We need some socially-oriented computing. We need Perfect. to show that computation, automation, robotics, computer-aided design and fabricated delivery works for the many, not for the few. Mm. This is, you know, the last words with which we could have ended the seminar two months ago. yeah,
1: It's a brilliant summary I think for the audience to the debate. And now, of course, like now we ended two months ago, just at the end of, of the seminar. Now we are two months down the corona crisis, and we've been at home at two months, the world has rapidly changed around us. So then the interesting thing is, how do you see that kind of, let's say, this attempt to combine the digital with a kind of more um, being aware of social and political concerns? How, like, do you think that's getting reinforced in a way now by what we are seeing developing around us?
2: Well, you know, more than reinforced, in many cases, our long-standing argument has been vindicated well beyond what we would expect that we would see within our lifetime, in a mm. sense. Been an acceleration of social-technical change, which may has brought about change at a, an hyper-accelerated speed, as it often happens in times of war, of mm. emergency, technological change is accelerated because it's a matter of survival. And so we have accepted during the lockdown things that in normal conditions would have taken one generation for us to get used to. But there is one class which I generally teach to my undergraduate and I was actually teaching one. I started in February to my French undergraduate students and we started in the classroom not knowing how we would and the classroom, which we are now doing online, evidently. But a class which is titled "Ways of Making" and it's an argument I've taken teaching for some time. And in my general view of you know the history of technology across centuries and millennia, I argue that there is you know hand making at the beginning, mm. then mechanical machine making with the Industrial Revolution, and digital making, which is what we are doing now. And making is craft, what artisans do. Mechanical machine making is the word of the Anthropocene. It is the factory, mass production, economy of scale, standardization, global transportation of mass produced items and goods in the pursuit of economies of scale. Yeah. And now we know that the digital and computation doesn't work that way because there are no economies of scale. So. A little fab lab at the corner of the street can make a teapot at the same cost per teapot as a huge factory, mm. which is between 1 million teapots per day and then shipping the teapots around the world by planes. So handmaking, making craft, mechanical machine-making, factories, digital-making, the computational fabrication lab. And my argument was, computation is the future, it's going to happen. Now. Have a look at what we have been doing for the last two months. How did we survive for both like you and me, but so far you know, we are still here. Um, what kept us alive? The artisan at the corner of the street, repairing bicycles, the baker making bread, the little shop still making cheese in slices and putting them into envelopes. They never stopped working. A typical artisan who works alone, in a shop, making a table, doesn't need to isolate because he's mm. isolated all his time. He's a solitary guy, most of the time, it's a solitary activity. Perhaps an artisan and two apprentices, it's like a family, they don't need to separate, they always work together. Yeah. Craft kept working. Computation and robotic kept working because robots do not feel that virus. There are other viruses, of course, on the internet, but <laughs> one doesn't, the robots didn't catch this virus. Virus. So, craft and computation still work, and they still work. Absolutely. What didn't work? The factory and the airport. The factory and the airport are no longer there. They're melted, they're uh, disappeared. What kept us alive is the artisan and the internet. They still work. Mm-hmm. The, factory and the airport don't work, Absolutely. they are out of the game and so what we were always saying craft and computation local and robotics or local robotic automation is the future the irony is it is not the future for the last two months it has been our present but mm-hmm. the only thing that kept us you know functioning yeah last two months
1: but i i want to make a, a side note uh on that point because i mean i obviously agree with your i mean with our experience basically of the corona crisis where we have somehow been dropped into an entirely different world where all global production chains have broken down to a certain extent and where we're again kind of living locally i i haven't moved outside of like a kind of one mile boundary of where i live i you know kind of um where our, our world has kind of in a way shrunk and um everything it's it's in a way we have arrived you could say also in a kind of perhaps a more primitive world where the the bicycle replaces the airplane you know the homemade bread replaces the factory made bread and a lot of these kind of uh, things that we knew from a globalized um, hyper modernist world of kind of um, big factory production that has all kind of broken down. So it's true that we have arrived in um, a kind of, uh, our future has in a way been accelerated and we've arrived in a world where local distributed production is incredibly valuable. And it's even kind of a matter of survival in in some cases. But um, the kind of when we're talking, of course, about automation and about local digital production, it's important to also understand that this has uh, specific economic and political consequences. And you 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 know my argument there, but I will repeat it, of course, for the sake of the conversation. So But the, the audience the, the, doesn't, so you're yeah, welcome exactly. to the yeah. So the um the 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 story goes and it's a beautiful story that in an age of digital production that we could all become our own kind of artisanal makers and we would all kind of in a very democratic way, distribute our goods and trade with each other and manufacture um, objects uh, locally in our in our families, etc. Now, the reality is that when we look at how the digital economy has unfolded after 2008, and I think that's also where, again, I make this kind of mark that this happened after 2008. Be, be, before 2008, I would say that the digital economy was still kind of indebted to this dot-com crisis. It was basically websites. It was not yet on the smartphone. In fact, in 2008, there was not yet a smartphone. It only happened after 2008, which is, again, important to make this rupture. So and after 2008, design, we gets, yeah, well, yeah, then we get this kind of, um, you know, the social media platforms and uh, other kinds of platforms. And that is when, when suddenly the economy, the economic model that the digital economy chooses moves towards the platform. And Nick Cernicek has described this, the platform as basically that you have um, a lot of people who are producers. So you could think about it as an Instagram. Someone has an Instagram page, an influencer, Someone selling objects. But of course, these local producers cannot actually sell their goods if they don't have a marketplace to trade them. And this marketplace then forms a platform. The platform as we know it today is eBay. And it's probably most, um, the best example is probably Amazon, right? And uh, what we actually see is that these platforms are incredibly opaque and centralized and uh, often quite like evil uh, forms of companies, right? You have Uber, who is a platform for cars where drivers get underpaid. Uh, Uber does not need to produce any of the services. They are just a platform. Airbnb is the platform for um, holiday rentals. And then uh, Amazon is is kind of the kind of omnipresent platform for everything that we sell and consume, especially now in this COVID um, 19 scenario. So, what we also see is that actually, with um, the corona crisis, that actually also that scenario of the platforms has accelerated as well. We have actually seen that Jeff Bezos is now much richer than he was before the corona crisis. the only he's person in the world, yeah, he's exactly. exactly. Like he, he's benefiting from this. He's almost becoming a trillionaire now. So it's, it's absolutely stunning that, in a way, what Corona has done, it has removed all levels between us and Amazon. It's literally a world where we, you know, we live locally, we cycle, and then there is Amazon, and the kind of intermediary levels of other forms of companies or businesses that normally would separate us from Amazon have been forced in a way to close down or to shut down or are in deep trouble. So what we're actually seeing is a scenario that the platform becomes incredibly, incredibly uh, um, um, important. And of course, the critique by the Cernicek and also I think by, um, you know, our kind of group of architects is that the platform is not, it's not this democratic future of the makers. You could actually argue that it's, um, to go back to the artisanal equivalent, it actually brings us back to medieval times. The platform is actually a kind of form of digital feudalism, just as you had the old kind of castle lord or knight who would have his castle. He would have the marketplace, he would tax, and then his serfs who were working on the field would have to go through the castle to sell the goods. So actually in a kind of very strange historical, like history always repeats itself, never in the same way. But somehow you could also draw this parallel that if we're talking about an artisan's economy that there's a certain kind of politics attached to that and that this politics for the moment more and more points in the direction of that feudalism. so this would be kind of my my question in a way to to discuss is how can we um shape this kind of um artisan's economy or this distributed economy maybe if you could call it that way so that we can in a way bypass these platforms right are these platforms inevitable or can we actually Bypassing? Can we? Do we need politics to bypass For example, there are people who are saying that we need to nationalize Amazon because it's just an advanced version of the postal service, or, 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 to, know, break up, or, or break to break it
2: up, or break it up, which so, is the traditional anti-monopolistic yeah. approach. Yeah,
1: exactly. So that's well, an important debate I think that we need to have because I don't think it's as rosy as as uh, as we may think it is. Like, uh, yeah. Well, every time of
2: technological of rapid technological change favors historically the creation of monopolies this is is a fact electrification in 1880s had these consequences the rapid rise of the automobile industry after world war ii had the same consequences telephony was monopolistic before it was broken down but i don't buy the argument the vast conspiracy, which has been endorsed even by reasonable people, but the coronavirus is a ploy conceived by, um, <coughs> I, I don't know who, by, by Jeff Bezos or <laughs> what? No, no, uh, the, the Microsoft guy. What's, what's oh, his name? Oh, Michael Gates. Like Bill Gates, in order to acquire the domination of the world.
1: No, 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 that's, uh, yeah. Well, but you know, some (laughs)
2: even reasonable people are arguing for that, but there is an evident counter argument to that. At least one fifth of the world population is completely immune by the Western monopolies. I mean, China, the People's Republic of China, uses digital technologies in ways which are way more pervasive than we do in Western Europe. But yep. none of our Western monopolies has any footprint inside of China. Now I don't say that their monopolies are different for our monopolies, but it means that monopolies can be broken down with
1: Political choices. So would reason? they then be like broken down regionally, or how would you see that? Would you see like a European Union version of Amazon, or how would you see
2: that? I don't, I, I don't know. But it yeah. simply means that it is technically possible to break down the global yeah. span of the internet yeah. if China did it. There is at least one fifth, I think, to the last count, one fifth of the world population, which is among the most you know, the country where yeah. the internet and digital technologies have a more pervasive influence in daily life, where Amazon doesn't sell anything to mm-hmm. the best of minority, of my because they have their own, their own. And then, just an anecdotal remark, as I am dependent on the internet to buy food, and I was particularly during the last, the most draconian period of, of, of the lockdown, I found out that It may be specific to London, but I've read that the same is happening in parts of America. Amazon has not been the smartest to adapt itself and to adopt um, the contingency mode. What I found that in London, the best way to get food is to find on the internet a local artisan shop.
1: Mm. Yeah. Like, a, like a farmer delivery, you know, like they also do this kind of well, like there farmer shops yeah, of
2: course yeah. not cheap, But there are a few yeah. shops which seven days after the beginning of the lockdown, since they couldn't sell in the shop, they started selling on the internet like crazy, mm. and in some cases, not in all cases, some they didn't manage the delivery, fulfillment the technology, mm. but some did and so the best cheese that I can buy in London these days is not from companies that I shall not mention but it is through a couple of little shops which actually deliver excellent cheese within 24 hours. <laughs> Through the internet, it is artisan yeah. shops and internet delivery. Amazon doesn't play any. In fact, actually, Amazon, Amazon Fresh, that's the name, for the first month in London, was actually not delivering anything at all. Because mm. I tried, when oh, the yeah, there yeah. and the first delivery possible was in July. Which, yeah. of course, it's, food doesn't help. Now it's working somewhat better. I just ordered some food. Order ordered this morning, will come on Saturday. So it's more people. Perfect. Um, but <laughs> Another yeah. anecdotal case, our friend Manuel. Um, is, is he still in Spain, by the way? He's, he he's, he's
1: probably watching, actually. I saw his name somewhere, so be careful what you say. Uh, well, yeah. he was among the first, to the best of my knowledge, at the very
2: beginning of the lockdown, to convert his workshop in spain from making what they were making subcontracting for zaadid for whom they were i understand this is what he published were making table sets the space of one weekend they reconfigured their their the script and as of monday they were Mm -hmm. making pp personal protective equipment for the local hospital and the important thing is it was made for a local delivery yeah mind you you shouldn't fall into the capitalist traditional anthropocentric idea that if you do it well, you should scale up. That's exactly what you should not yeah. do. But the idea is that in every town, there is a similar workshop who can do a similar job for a similar hospital. Mm-hmm. Local robotic distributed production. We have been a, you know, having fans, flight of fancies on the future of this technology for years. And in this specific instance, is of course a limited anecdotal case. This technology, as it happens, was within reach with the technologies yeah. we have in this workshop. But they jumped onto this need in the space of 48 hours, and one week later, all around the world, every digital workshop, every school of architecture was doing that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's I mean, a demonstration. A, yeah, like that's a, that's of course like a great demonstration of the ability of robotic workshops to establish also like flexible production chains because a robot doesn't really care what it prints it could print one thing one day and another thing another day like that's the kind of the great story really of um, the embedded resilience of robotic uh, manufacturing versus traditional modernist very long production chains and it's interesting again like a, like i think that's a super interesting debate because for example um uh, in the context of uh, britain the audience may know that Britain is attempting to do a brexit they're trying to separate themselves from uh, the European Union, and in doing that they will actually lose all their cheap labor the people from uh, certain parts of Europe who would come over to help harvest for example or to do all um, to basically do jobs that uh, that um, are too low paid um, um, for for locals in a way and um As part of their Brexit strategy, the British government already also proposed, which is interesting and and strange and a bit perverse, but they already also proposed to invest in increased automation because they were saying we can replace this this cheap labor with robots and in that way we become independent of our production chains with uh, mainland Europe. And again, that also has been accelerated by the corona crisis, where suddenly all of that cheap labor could not come to pick the tomatoes and the strawberries that they produce in Britain. And they actually had to come up with, you know, or let it rot or come up with other solutions. So automation is true that it has a kind of deep um, geopolitical meaning as well. Like the fact that we are seeing a kind of decoupling of economies through automation and it's interesting that people such as chris anderson from uh, wired magazine he actually deliberately always wrote that the fab lab and um, diy culture he always positioned that actually as a kind of uh, antithesis to uh what he said was like communist country manufacturing meaning china like he always saw 3d printing and digital fabrication as a way to sabotage uh, China and get back jobs to the United States. To again kind of show how there is you know, geopolitical kind of consequences to, um, yeah, to those ideas of manufacturing. Robotic
2: labor, robotic labor costs the same in Zurich as in Mongolia. Yeah, costs, exactly. Uh, so there is no need to yeah. delocalize okay. robotic labor. Yeah. Robot downstairs here will cost more or less, yeah. not exactly, but more or less the same as in the same robot, we're in a remote, low labor cost location. But by the way, it is not indispensable to have Brexit to understand that automation is a solution to some problems. (laughs) Uh, The European Union is doing the same on the other side of the border. In fact, the best way to speed up automation is not to um, disrupt migration, circulation, it is just a good sound policy of high salaries. Yep. Workers yeah, well, like Switzerland does yep. or Austria does or Germany, exactly. Germany. Because they like they one of
1: the, it's, it's, a, it's a rule also of automation, like automation, the only reason why not everything is automated today is because you can still offset the investment cost of a robot in cheap labor. So that's yes, why essentially by bringing production from Europe To China in the early 90s or or even in the late 80s that was actually offsetting the investment of having to buy robots they were like oh we don't need robots because we can produce cheaply in China and what you're seeing now that uh, the cost of labor in China goes up production moves into a series of other countries so now it's moving into Bangladesh into Vietnam and then at some point there will be no countries left and (laughs) we will have to automate right so it's basically like a kind of a cost calculation like if If the action is too expensive to automate, you don't automate it. For example, that's why in the Amazon warehouse still a lot of labor is manual. It's not because Because you want to employ people, but because it's still cheap enough and too expensive to automate this amount of access, right? Um, Um, the The big leap
2: forward of industrial robotics, they were invented in America in the early 60s, but the generalized adoption in the European car manufacturing industry was after 68. Not only because in 68 the workers proved that they would strike ad infinitum if necessary, so the manager started to think, well, perhaps robots would not strike that much. But significantly, salaries of blue-collar workers in the automobile industry between 68 and 69 in most European countries skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. So it made sense for the capitalists to replace expensive workers with cheaper robots mm-hmm. if they had kept the salaries as low as they were before 1968, they would never have had any incentive to automate. Mm-hmm. Of course, you automate to replace expensive um, labor, and then there would be no labor anymore. So we are moving to a society without work, yep. which is of course not a technical problem,
1: it is a political It's an absolutely a political problem. I like What, what we're also seeing again with the corona crisis, like for example in Spain, was particularly hit very hard by the corona crisis there is actually a political incentive now to to introduce a universal basic income for example as a kind of a measure a political measure to begin to deal with on the one hand the fallout from the corona but on the other hand also kind of prepping in a way society for um, a more automated uh, future and of course like there's a big debate around universal basic income uh, for the audience, like if you don't know, universal basic income is essentially, it's not the same as unemployment money. It's the idea that every human being, independent on whether you work or not work, that you get um, a basic salary that allows you to rent, eat and, and live. Because it's kind of saying that it's a basic human right to do that. So uh, like everyone just gets it. And if you want to earn more money, you can still work to kind of top up your UBI, but you will not lose it. And the interesting thing is that both left and right advocates of people like Elon Musk, who is sometimes a bit on the dark fringes of the political <laughs> spectrum, uh, he, he also advocates for UBI, right? Because he realizes yeah, that it, the masses pure. will be uncontrollable if if anything if gets it happened. Happened
2: bottom line i mean we replace workers with automation if automation is more productive and it costs less than the workers we are you know kicking out of a production system this means that at the end of the day the replacement is creating more wealth than it is destroying otherwise replacement would not occur so to the limit this argument push this argument to the limit it means that at some point we will not be working anymore but the amount of wealth created by the elimination of remunerated work will be enough to keep us, all of us you know, alive without working. Mm. And personally, I wouldn't see any problem if the robots were doing all the dirty jobs which we do not want to do and we can mm. spend the rest of our time playing tennis. Tell me, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I don't see any ideological, practical, ethical, moral problem. I mean, it's, if it's been the miners yeah. are replaced by robots, yeah. and people working in you know coal mines today yeah. tomorrow but they can go to the yeah. beach and play volleyball. I mean, it's it, like, it, 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 it was a problem? dream
1: of uh, Keynes, and it was a communist dream. I mean, it's kind of yeah, you could say it's kind of a logical endpoint of uh, of um, you know of of uh, both capitalism and communism would end kind of, kind of uh, uh, perhaps well, the robot Robots
2: means, etymologically, slave labor.
1: Yeah, serves. So,
2: if, the robot serves, if the robots can do all those dirty jobs, what's the problem? So long as the excess of wealth, which is created by the elimination of a remunerated human work,
1: is evenly distributed. Yeah. Which is why so the question of the platforms is so important, right? Because Currently, in the current model where automation is going, obviously the wealth is not kind of evenly distributed, but it's piling up in the platform. Society at some point will boil and we will blow up at some point. Blow up the platforms. Maybe to shift the conversation a bit towards kind of architectural implementation. So now that we're talking about um, the corona crisis, we're all living locally or carbon footprint is has dropped incredibly i mean personally my carbon footprint and also your carbon footprint 0, that's been, zero. zero. That's been zero like like i i i used to fly almost every week or every two weeks i used to fly somewhere in the world but that's uh, i've been completely homebound so generally we could argue that we kind of like started to live um locally in a kind of decarbonized world and the question is like um, what you hear a lot is that um, that actually density uh, the kind of the big city the big cities that in a way that they have become redundant and that they also have become dangerous because essentially big cities are full of people these people can infect you with corona so they're not as healthy as the countryside and by the way now we can live in the countryside because we're all connected over Instagram and zoom anyway so in a funny way, coinciding with when Pooh has his show on the countryside, which also opened, I believe, two days before the Corona crisis. So yeah. no one, no <laughs> one has seen funny. it. It was a big. Uh, <laughs> in a way of I know someone <laughs> who saw it. The real okay? okay. <laughs> that, Like that's yeah. Like um, so, no one has seen that show. But that show was meant to tell us that the countryside is important again. So in an ironic way, you could you could say that, right? You could say, well, if we are producing locally, if we are producing in a distributed way. If life becomes, to a certain extent, artisanal again, and if life becomes primitive and chunky, why would we live in a city? Like, is this actually, you know, a kind of, if we reverse to pre-modern times, do we reverse, you know, back so far as before the Renaissance city and we go kind of back to kind of more, uh, you know, uh, medieval kind of scenario of like small hamlets and villages and a few, like, (laughs) leftovers of cities here and there? Or is the city actually still a kind of a project for architects? And and I think that's a super controversial question, right? Because because architecture has really been, in the modern project, entirely based on the idea of density and on the idea of the city. And now the question is, like, is that actually... Do we need to reinvigorate the countryside? um, Well, I
2: think we must make a difference between some... Knee-jerk reactions, hmm. which are extreme during the epidemics, and which, in my opinion, will abate when the epidemic, at some point, all epidemics, at some point, will will will. Are you still there? You froze. Oh no, no, I'm still there. No, I'm still there. Still there. I'm, I was taking no,
1: no, no. some questions from the audience, uh, trying to pick out the question.
2: Uh, yeah. So there are things which I think, after the immediate reaction of the emergency will revert more or less to the natural course and things which will not. For example, um, we have learned during confinement that electronic communications do work and they can replace some form of teaching, not all form of teaching, but in some cases they are effective and they can certainly replace a lot of office work. Yep. from my windows and perhaps even from yours we can see the skyscrapers of the city of london which in the evening are still glowing in full light all the lights are on sometimes i walk around and they are all ported they are dormant in the lobby and the lobby is kept clean yep. but for the last two months not a single person has been doing any work in mm-hmm. any of those buildings and yet the stock exchange is open transactions happen the financial markets never froze up so when these banks go back to business they will have to reassess the fact that most of the capital they invest in those offices they can do without not the capital the offices so some reduction of the footprint of the volumes we build for activities which we do no longer no longer need to make in some physical spaces what in the 90s we used to call Despecialization, the migration from physical space to yeah. cyberspace, cyberspace. As, we call yeah. <laughs> it, as we call it 25 years ago. This is the revenge of cyberspace. Cyberspace, yeah. in some cases, yeah. work. It is cost effective. Yeah. The waste of having all these skyscrapers, which in the best case scenario, are populated 35 hours per week. And not every week of the year. The rest of the time, it is frozen capital, which is there doing nothing. Yeah. That applies to many university campuses. A lot of real estate, which is used what? Six months a year? Seven months yeah. a year? And the rest of the time, it is there, populated by rats. I know some schools but are populated by <laughs> For rats. For example, not, we, we will not men. you imagine when we... <laughs> <laughs> What's happening in some buildings during the lockdown? Oh it no, will it's be a, a, it's a zoo, land. probably. Yeah. It, <laughs> when it, we uh, come back, we shall need a cat in every classroom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's it, it's also interesting that in a way, this also goes back to kind of pre-modern primitivism, right? Because in pre-modern times, there was no separation of of work and, and living exactly. and entertainment. Everyone would work in their home. And in one way, what we're doing now is, I mean, we're playing little university right now. We're doing a seminar technically from the living room for an audience that is spread all over the world. We just checked there were people from you know from India to the Middle East to South America. There's there's people from all over the world just kind of, you know, tuning into this seminar from their phone. So it's incredible in a way how um physical space is being eroded on the one hand by this thing, but at the same time also um um opens up an opportunity i think for us as architects to, to think what are we still going to do with these towers and these cities right i mean could it actually be a moment now to say that we need to look back at um the home right at the house itself and could could we say actually now that we're working from home we're going to university in the home could we actually have like a larger apartment yeah well yes our
2: homes were designed the idea that we do not work exactly from home yeah. that we do not watch movies yeah. at home that yeah. we are out and about most of the time but this was the modernist idea. Exactly. The city yeah. becomes more efficient through the specialization of functions. So there are parts of the city which are only residential. You mm. live there, you do not work there. Then there are parts of the city which are only for work but you do not live there. Yeah. There are parts of the city where you go for fun or for shopping but you do not live and you do not work there. And so to keep this specialized city alive you need Infrastructure of transportation, going from one place to another. But my idea of an ideal late medieval, not feudal, but mercantile city, Uh, in my hometown, for example, I remember the market square, which is still there. Mm -hmm. And of the market square, every house was the house of a merchant or an artisan with a warehouse in the basement, a shop on the ground floor, a workshop. Behind it, his own residence on the first floor, and his apprentices lived in the second floor in the attic. The entire production, commerce, stock, stock, uh, stock of warehousing, bookkeeping, retail, it all happened under the same roof. And for many centuries, well, one city which still embodies, well, think of Venice, think of Amsterdam they still keep that configuration mm-hmm. more famous my, my hometown which is basically the same the yep, same yep, structure. Yep. people know Venice in Amsterdam
1: better and but well, it's it, it's interesting though that like in a way like you could always say that um, or that's something that I learned in university my professor told me back then he said like uh, my my history professor back in Belgium said that uh, that architecture when I was studying was shit, which is like, you know, the 2000s, beginning of the 2000s, like ar- like architecture today is shit because the economy is good. He's saying the best architecture <laughs> happens during crisis. Because <laughs> no, if there's not, a crisis, about then that. The architects <laughs> have nothing to do, they sit at home, they finally read a book, and then they do something meaningful. And then he says as soon as the economy accelerates, then the architecture quality kind of radically drops, and everyone builds and builds and builds, and builds stuff, and and it kind of en- ends up in a big mess. So in, in one way, you could say that, yes, that maybe this kind of moment of crisis, for example, I mean, or kind of the work that we call the discrete essentially also emerged as a reaction to a crisis, right? It was 2008. There was a new kind of, uh, we all graduated. There were not a lot of jobs. We had a bit of time on our hands. And it was also a moment where we reacted in a way to, um, to a new political and, and social landscape that we could kind of, yeah. that, we, force us to redefine in a way a series of questions so similarly maybe now i mean now probably even more there's a moment to kind of rethink a lot of ways of how we practice architecture how we educate and also really kind of i think core architectural things which is like how we live right this question of housing for example and it's also worth i mean noting in this context that for example what well, in my opinion is the most radical architecture model ever the, the corbusier's maison domino <laughs> it, uh, that was designed in 1916 uh, during the Spanish uh, flu, the, the so major pandemic. 14, right? So during yeah. the, but during the will, pandemic, I, yeah. And it was designed as a reaction to you know, the First World War and also to hygiene, right? So the idea of hygienic housing in a way for large groups of people who have been uh, kind of you know, affected by this crisis.
2: I've been thinking about that, and I didn't have the time to double-check my sources, so if someone among the listeners is a Le Corbusier expert, and can do a quick search on the text to double-check. It's just an intuition. Le Corbusier's Shapes and Forms and Invention of the Twenties are frequently um, referred to the heliotherapy of tuberculosis. Mm. Soleil, space, and greenery, yep. you know, yep. it was the oh, oh, sanatorium uh, environment. It was
1: long, about
2: lung disease as well, right? Yeah, lung disease. Well, that's a different <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I don't think, but this is exactly what I would like to check, I don't think Corbu or Corb ever made any reference to the Spanish flu pandemics. Mm. This reference is always to the sanatorium, to the cock bacillum yeah. So the sanatorium, the only therapy at the time was you go to the sanatorium, you bath in the sun and you hope that that will... And in the 20s and 30s the idea was build heliotherapy colonies where people yeah. live a healthy life in the sun. That's the only way to keep tuberculosis at bay. Mm. I this entire idea of bleeding in the sun Clean air and space and yep. not immediate proximity. The main reference was the pandemic of the tuberculotic bacillum, the cock yep. bacillum. Yep. The Spanish flu pandemic?
1: No, it was not. Uh, yeah.
2: I don't think he ever even no. once yep. mentioned
1: it. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. So it's, uh, yeah, it's his is some culture like Le, Le, Le Corbusier was always walking around naked as well, famously yeah. on his uh, roof terrace.
2: <laughs> anyway, and um, he died that way, by the way, because. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, we're kind of heading towards the end of the conversation, so I was thinking maybe we can try to take a quick question from the audience. Can yeah. you manage that? There's a number of see? questions here, so yeah. Manuel is saying why are you wearing the same glasses? That's a good question. We did not coordinate. I think glasses, <laughs> I think glasses are spoon. Yeah, um, let me check if there's, there's a lot of questions. Um, um, but I should not... Hamid told me I should not click on the question, so the question needs to be very short. Um, um, well, but maybe as we're at the end of the conversation, I. Let's say um, there's a nice one here. um, There's a question: Do you see architecture as a business? That's a very blunt question in our conversation. Do you see architecture as a business, Mario?
2: No, I see it as a vocation, as a mission. I'm not a businessman. If I wanted to be a businessman, I would be in a business, Mm. which I am not. Yeah. Of course, we need to earn our living, but Mm. in many times and in many countries over time, architects. Even famous architects have a state salary and they receive that state salary to carry out their mission and their vocation. It's not necessary to be paid on percentage, or I mean, in some countries, the only way, but it's, I mean, historically, alternatives
1: have existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, uh, like, uh, I think if architecture is a business, it's definitely a very bad business, in, in any case. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, yes, yeah, of course. Why would you choose a business where everyone, except for para- yeah. six or seven steratises in the world, is yeah. not making any money at all?
1: Yes. Brilliant. Um, so, I would say we can uh, probably wrap it up on this note. I thought that was highly right. enjoyable, with, with our, the first Instagram, <laughs> our first Instagram uh, session. We can ask if 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 a lot of people like this. We can obviously continue this maybe at another point. We can you can ask Hamid and Parametric Architecture if they want to host more of this kind of uh, debates. I think it's great that uh, that we can do that on Instagram. It's it's um, I think a, a great platform to um, to and be able to bring did, some discourse. Huh? I don't
2: I don't even use Instagram, so I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, now we do. Let's right? have a look. Okay, thank you for.
1: Yep. Setting it up. Thank, thank you, thank you for reminding ma- 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 it to the audience. I will just quickly switch on the comments so people can say bye. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thank that, you all for following this. Thank you. Thanks, Mario. I will Steven remove X. you from the conversation. Me. Remove, remove me. Remove me. Remove Mario Carpo. You are gone. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, this was a debate between Mario Carpo and Jourette, and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, um yeah. Uh, See you next time. Thank you so much.
0: guys thank you so much for listening just wanted to mention that computational design next 2.0 conference will take place on 26th and 27th of september it is a two-day online conference with live presentations tutorials interactive sessions live mentorship and panel discussions so if you're interested about computational design or if you want to start your career as a computational designer don't miss out this opportunity and just register to the conference by going to parametric-architecture.com and register to the cdnext conference as soon as possible before tickets end Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to PSN's Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts in order not to miss a single episode. Also, you can find out more by going to parametric-architecture.com podcasts. Please share this podcast with a URL to inspire a friend. Also, you can use hashtag PASense on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to give us a feedback or a review about our podcasts. Thank you so much. Oh,